0: Hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stanmore major And in this uh, episode, we're going to be looking once again at the Ukraine and things that are developing there. I've been doing a lot of uh, research and trying to understand more about what's going on. I listen on the one hand to what's being said in the the news and on the radio and reading the newspapers. And on the other hand, I see facts surfacing from the giant superhighway of information that exists out there in the internet, which seem to be at a counterpoint to what uh, I'm being told by legacy media outlets. So I've been trying to understand more about it. I'm not really a geopolitical whiz, but certainly I know how to press buttons and operate a mouse. And I know how to get out there and do some research. So I jumped in uh, over the last couple of days and started to get a more of a feel for why Russia is doing what it's doing in the Ukraine. Now, this kind of conversation, I think that sometimes people just have... Completely topped off their tanks with what's going on in the uh, in the in the news, and they turn to something like a podcast like this just to have a little bit of escapism. So if you don't want to listen to this one, no problem at all. There's going to be a new uh, mariner podcast coming out tomorrow, and that one's going to be more about sailing again. But for now, I want to jump in on the Ukraine. Uh, things are developing in that country very very quickly. Of course, we're all keeping an eye on it and absolutely horrified by what we're seeing. The uh, the disaster which is going on there is just too much, too much at the moment to to comprehend. Um, but I think that there's some uh, important points that we need to understand both about the way we're being told about this at home and about what's happening on the ground there in Ukraine. And I saw with interest in the last couple of days that um, Vladimir Zelensky has uh, offered that uh, Ukraine won't join NATO and will in fact seek to become uh, an independent, neutral state. And uh, I'd recorded this podcast before he said that. I think that now he said that the points I have to make here are even more uh, pertinent. So um, I'd just like to say going into this, the world that we live in now with um, anybody who says anything on any kind of social media base, it's good to just say what exactly is your baseline position. And my position is that uh, no war at any time. Crimes against humanity, people wandering in somebody else's country and trying to take it over. We should be past that. It shouldn't be happening. Russia needs to stop what it's doing right now. Um, What I am seeking to understand as an individual is why they would choose to do that, because I'm being told just that they are bad, they are evil, and uh, that's how they play the game. And yet I have a huge number of Russian friends, Ukrainian friends, good people who are all equally adamant that they do not want to be engaged in any kind of conflict and uh, I'm trying to understand how the good people of these countries end up in this circumstance so apologies if I make any mistakes in my information and uh, apologies if anything I say offends you it's definitely not intended but uh, I do welcome feedback I do welcome comment and, and discussion that's what the world's about um, I think I mentioned in the podcast that we are learning how to use social media. We're learning how to communicate with each other through these new mechanisms. We're definitely not there yet. We're kind of in this messy, combative, weird, toxic, tribal kind of bit at the moment. But I do hope that through meaningful, sensible adult uh, conversation that recognizes the need for nuance and complexity and not just sound bites that uh, back up the narrative for whatever supposedly going on at the time so we're going to jump right in now with the recording uh, this was made during a, uh, a, a longer podcast which I, I've cut down to this format it was going on for like two hours so I've got the good bits here they are for you and I'm looking forward to reading your comments soon. I've um, been doing my research, I had my had my glasses on for a number of hours last night and this morning, and um, starting to look a little bit more at the history of what's going on. I decided to forge ahead and create this uh, element of the podcast and as a YouTube channel now, based on the fact that I got some really wonderful responses from the last one of these I did, and Yes, I know about sailing, but I'm not so two-dimensional. That's the only thing that I know about. And it's great to engage people in discussion about uh, what's happening in the world around us. I've got to say that my personal view is that um, things like YouTube and even social media but we are in the early days of it are an absolute blessing which we will learn to understand and use properly in the coming decades we're literally about 10 years into using this stuff now and clearly it's a mess but um so was writing to begin with so was printing The war that came directly after the invention of the printing press, we can talk about that later on, but things change when there's new communication methods. We're learning how to do it now. But I think that um, through these kinds of discussions between, I'm just a guy in the world, you're just people in the world, um, we discussing it, going through the comments, exchanging information back and forwards, respectfully, politely, carefully, um, we have a real opportunity to spread information I ended up having a really interesting conversation with my neighbors the other day about a lot of the thing that's going on in the world it was literally at the top of the driveway we're still that bit where we're not sure how close we're able to get to each other with these flipping mandates and that but um, we had a lovely conversation and we for the first time were exchanging our political um, geopolitical political views um, and uh, and finding there was so much common ground so I'm interested in hearing what you have to say I'm interested in uh, in sharing what I have to say, but always in a respectful and constructive manner. So, in the moment in the Ukraine, yes, the Russians are coming in, they are wrecking the place. I think, first of all, we have to say is why is this um, action uh, playing out in this way? Why is it that they are choosing this course of action? If we look into the narrative that's being pushed quite hard in the uh, press at the moment, in the last week, certainly, it's because Putin is. Um, is basically a modern Hitler and that the uh, Russians are aggressive and that they are moving into the Ukraine because they want to try and take over Europe. Give or take, that's kind of what we're being uh, given. Gas prices are obviously like going through the roof. And, uh, but we're going to be happy to pay that because uh, we're sticking it to Putin and every extra dollar that we pay at the pump, Putin's getting, uh, you know, he's getting slowed down as he goes into Ukraine and the, the, terrible images we see of uh, of children and, and, and mothers um, having to deal with this, this terrible violence as being enacted upon them. We will stop that by paying more at the gas pump. But this is akin to seeing giant dark clouds coming over the horizon and saying, oh, here comes the nighttime, or you know, it, it won't hit us, or it's probably going the other way or something like that. We have to understand what's going on. And then hopefully we can be part of the mechanism through this kind of communication, which, uh, which leads to a, uh, a, a better situation for everyone in the world. So let's take a little uh, look at the history of the Ukraine within sort of living memory. If we go back to 1990, that's not too far beyond uh, our ability to, uh, to uh, keep, keep in mind. Um, 1990s, uh, Ukraine was within the Soviet Union and between the soviet union and um and the europe were the eastern bloc countries now this was part obviously of the warsaw pact and at that time the countries that were in the um the Eastern Bloc, were uh, East Germany, which of course was split. We had split up Germany after the Second World War. It's such a large, such a powerful country, so well positioned that uh, it was split to make sure that there was a gap between Russia and, uh, well, essentially, and the U.S., um, and 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 split it up so it was subdivided and, and therefore less strong to take the antagonism away from the other members of the uh, the European continental uh, community. Um, but the Eastern Bloc countries: East Germany, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, and Albania. So there was a there was a, a block uh, a barrier of countries between Europe and America on one side and the Soviet Union on the other side. Then in 1990, uh, we start to move towards perestroika, glasnost, this process of winding down uh, these antagonistic groups. NATO had been set up uh, to to bring together basically countries that were nervous about the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union had proven comprehensively how powerful it was during the Second World War. And there was a feeling that we needed to... Um, band together in the west essentially um, so that we had a united front against uh, the the giant gorilla in our backyard which was the power and might of the soviet union but as things started to cool off and gorbachev and reagan chatted things through we started to wind all of this down and we started to wind it down to a point where the warsaw pact was broken up and of course soon after that the soviet union itself started to dissolve so the soviet union existed for a long period Uh, of peace essentially. Although it was a cold war, there was no real actual shooting war. Um, It existed in a point of peace where there was a a barrier and a a kind of open ground between the European Union and Russia. As we start to break this all down, um, we get into a situation where we can start to see that from Russia's point of view, as we spoke about in the last uh, episode, um, from Russia's point of view, they gave up a lot of the power they had in that region in that no man's land between themselves and, and europe and then they watched as um europe uh, and the european uh, union and nato grew and grew and grew breaking the promises which we mentioned the last one were made to them that they wouldn't move any further east so if we go through and have a look specifically what was happening in the ukraine um in 1989 and 1990, as part of that uh, that movement away from communism, um, anti-communist protests swept through Eastern Europe, starting in Poland and spread through the Soviet bloc. In Ukraine, in 1990, uh, 400,000 people joined hands to create a human chain stretching some 400 miles from the western cities uh, to Kiev. Um, in uh, to to protest the fact that they wanted to move away from communism. So at that point, looking from the West's point of view, the the West is a liberal hegemon. They are out to uh, put their political um, agenda in front of other countries and say, hey, you know, is this something you'd like to be involved in? Um, We have got large countries in the world at the moment who do not agree with the way that Europe and the US is run. Okay. And that's just a, that's just a fact of the world we have china and we have the uh middle eastern countries and we have russia we have a lot of places down in South America that do not particularly agree with the exact way that it's going down in Europe with the UN, NATO, EU, America, all that stuff. Capitalism and um, the interaction between uh, countries, once you have a liberal uh, hegemon in place, once you have a liberal uh, system in place and you get capitalism at play, then you have a situation where countries very rarely fight against each other. It's... it's supposedly a a better way of doing things but the opposition to those liberal views to those capitalist views are the views held by very large proportions of the planet and it would be wrong perhaps to think that we are right because we think what we think because that's what we're criticizing and people that we see on the other side of this but obviously you know it would be If there was a conflict between China and the U.S. tomorrow, we would feel right now, like gut instinct, that it'd be a good thing if we beat China. And I've I've got nothing to say on this, but you can see how you'd feel like, yes, we must beat China. But that means that China's like in the crosshairs for our the way we have organized our community the way that we interact with each other the objectives of that community are at a counterpoint to what's going on in other parts of the world which means that those other parts of the world see themselves as being in opposition to what's going on in the us and the eu i hope that that makes sense so it's not necessarily that um We as uh, individuals within this community like want to take over other people's land. It's not like we're Vikings running down through the UK, you know, a couple of thousand years ago trying to take over on a one to one basis. But the leaders of the countries that we work for, if they had their chance, would be very happy to go in and uh, exchange communism exchange uh whatever dictatorship or whatever we'd love to exchange that uh, and make them part of this kind of organization of what we've got and the way that that happens um with america and the uh nato is a three-pronged attack the three-pronged attack when they are trying to go into somewhere and do something is that Uh, First of all, you try and extend some kind of organizational structure over the country because organizational structures are inherently rule bound. And if you can get people like playing by the rules, then you can get them to kind of come in and be part of your group. And NATO is a fantastic uh, example of that. You get people in NATO. There's a lot of big benefits to being in nato like if you the, the clause five which uh, is a major part of the 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 uh, united nations uh, sorry the uh, nato treaty is that uh, member states will help each other militarily um that's a wonderful thing to get if you're um Albania or Moldova or something like that and you're sitting next door to Russia, you might well be looking over going, that'd be great, like they'll come and defend us. And those kind of offers have been made before. This is a kind of carrot which is um, put in front of countries and it causes um this uh, uh, one of the second parts of this uh, this process or it causes one of the next parts of the process to kick into gear and that is if you can tempt people with capitalism that everyone's getting richer if they join the eu which gives them a mechanism to interact within the trade uh, zone of europe then suddenly they're like oh this is great like hang on we've got military protection we just play by the rules then we've got capitalism we've got this money we can make like this is looking great And the third part of it is that you want to try and create some kind of revolution where the governmental system of that country shifts much closer ideologically to what's going on in the West and in the U.S. You create some kind of orange revolution or rose revolution, as it was called in Georgia. You can change the government of the country. Now, again, governments of countries which exist in political um, headspace is different to the to to europe and uh and 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 the u.s look across at this tactic and see it as being well basically it's be- pretty much imperialism isn't it? they're trying to take over but in a slightly different way but what we're going to do is we're going to change your economic system we're going to change your ideological system we're going to change the way that you do everything and uh the the thing is that when we go into these countries which are a little bit that they're not, um, they're not as easy to bring on board as places like Greece or Spain, which have also joined the NATO. If you're talking about places which have been inside the Soviet uh, bloc for a very long time, then you are dealing with countries that have a totally different way of, of, of going about their business. When those countries start to change their ideology closer to what's going on in the West, whether it is that they have signed something with NATO, whether it's that they've entered the EU, that element that orange revolution that that possibility that they're going to shift to this other ideology is a direct attack on the uh the 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 soviet bloc in this in this case the the well not the soviet bloc rather the russian countries who have an ideology of their own which they have pursued for hundreds of years at least and um and they're pretty solid about it something i wanted to bring up in this to try to flip it on its head and show it a slightly different way um the U.S. in uh, 1823 um, was uh, given the Monroe Doctrine. Have you ever heard about this? Embedded into the annual um, uh, State of the Union speech, um, uh, President James Monroe um, embedded this thing, which has since been called the Monroe Doctrine. And to um, to put it in its simplest fa- uh, its simplest method or simplest uh, explanation, um, I'll just I'll just paraphrase it. Basically, what it says is that everything in the west is america's okay just let that sink in for a second the monroe doctrine which was just kind of like uh popped into a, an otherwise kind of uh, hey what's going on in the u.s this says that basically we own everything in the west so now who is that uh, aimed towards that 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 discussion it's 1823 at the time they were looking at a couple of things they were looking at russian uh, interests in alaska and the fact that the russians were coming out they were looking at the english who were potentially looking to come across they were looking at spain who was thinking about trying to recover some of its territories in south america if not some of its territories actually in the us and so this was um, designed to create a very strong statement this is uh you know 200 years ago Um, But it says everything in the West is the U.S.'s. And that at the time, a lot of South American countries like, yeah, this is great, because this means that um, they're going to protect us from the Spanish coming and trying to make a mess of things again. What it meant, though, was that a great big line was drawn around the U.S. saying you are not going to uh, bring any kind of... um, Uh, expeditionary forces into this area west of like the center of the Atlantic. And this, of course, is what spawns the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. Um, In 1961, when Kennedy had come into power, he had already signed an order to have the uh, missiles removed from Turkey. They had Jupiter missiles in Turkey. You think of where the Turkey border is, very, very close to the U.S., Those missiles in that position were incredibly antagonistic. In response, the U.S. had made a deal with Fidel Castro and had moved missiles into Cuba, but that was in direct opposition to the Monroe Doctrine. Now, the Monroe Doctrine was not agreed upon by you know a load of people sitting down shaking hands like, "Hey, it's a thing." It was just the U.S. went like, "Yeah, like everything on this side of the map, that's ours." So. We accept that um, it has been something which has, I think, led to more peace than it has war. But it is the thing which led to the closest we've ever been to thermonuclear war. Um, It is the reverse of that which is happening over in, uh, in Russia at the moment. The most simplest concept of looking at it, Russia has got its own version of the Monroe Doctrine. It's saying we are Russia. Uh, previously, obviously, the Soviet Union. We are Russia, and we um, we do not want you coming past this line. And they, I think it was one of their um, foreign, one of their d- diplomats, I forget who it was recently, who said that we have reached our boiling point. That's what they were talking about, about their move into the Ukraine. We have reached our boiling point. And of course, you reach a boiling point slowly. You don't instantly get to it. Now, people are saying uh, Putin is uh, as bad as uh, as. Adolf Hitler well Adolf Hitler is uh, pretty much individually although not by his own hands but by his actions by his policies responsible for the death of approximately 22 million people so it's a big statement to say that I hope to God that it is not in any way correct I hope that in no way does this play out because it's nice to have like a easily identifiable bad guy in the story which we could all shout boo when he comes on stage but if we do that with Putin I think we are cheapening uh what Hitler did which was he's a mass murdering shit, of course so what is happening now with Putin is very serious. And again, we don't take what's happening in the Ukraine in any way to be uh, anything other than an absolute tragedy that must end immediately. But to say Putin is like Hitler um, doesn't doesn't cut the mustard. That's n- that's not what's happening here. Putin also is accused of being uh, crazy and trying to um, recreate the Soviet Union. Now, he has actually made a statement on this himself, and he said that whilst in his heart, as someone who worked within the Soviet Union, um, he uh, had a personal individual like a dreamscape of like the soviet union coming to back together and being as strong as it was before he knows in his head that that's impossible and that none of his foreign policy is based on that. that would seem to fly in the face of what we're seeing as russian tanks roll into the ukraine but this has been getting hit to this point slowly and a lot of it has been happening because the us particularly has been doing uh a, a lot of pulling of the strings of going on in nato let's go back to what happened with um the, the ukraine here the timeline for them so 1989 1990 uh, a chain of linked hands across ukraine and then a uh, a, a massive change uh within the ukraine the rada which is the ukrainian parliament is formed and um uh, Ukrainian soldiers are uh, recalled from all over uh, Russia. So, if you're Ukrainian, you're no longer in the Soviet army. You now come back, and you're in um, you're in uh, the Ukraine. 1991. Obviously, we've got then uh, the Chernobyl incident. They uh, they shut down the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in northern Ukraine in 1990. We know, of course, the mess surrounding everything to do with Chernobyl. Um, in 1991 with the breakdown of the soviet union there was of course a massive power vacuum and then you have this uh, a coup which was attempted um And uh, that kind of messed up the situation for the Ukraine and their newly declared independence. So they uh, declared their independence again for the second time in 1991, uh, August 24th. And that's the day that Ukraine still uh, celebrates now as their day of independence. Um, They made their independence official with a a poll across the country with a referendum. 92% of the votes were in favor of them becoming independent. So at this point, from, russia's point of view they now have a neutral country to their west they've changed you know they don't have the warsaw pact anymore they don't have the eastern bloc countries but ukraine which is a major land mass of 45 million people is neutral and is not an issue for the uh the russia in that way um What starts to happen, of course, is that NATO starts looking across at uh, Ukraine and you can see that kind of like wicked intention uh, starts to uh, come across them again. And they start to think like, hmm, it would be kind of cool like if we uh, if we incorporated them as well. Now, at the time you're talking about the Ukraine where Most of the gas pipelines that come out of Russia go through the Ukraine. And Russia provides gas particularly, oil as well, but gas particularly to a lot of Europe. Russia has got a huge amount of leverage with the uh, governments of a lot of European countries. But they're still relaxed because they've got this boundary line between themselves and NATO. Uh, They've got the Ukraine. But the Ukraine is starting to be... um, now, if it was a foreign power doing it, we'd say coerced, but it's not uh, uh, co-opted is perhaps the, the, the way that we put it, because we exist within this liberal hegemon that uh, we see as being very positive. We feel as an individual level, as an independent level of people discussing this with each other, that it is a positive thing when countries get rid of their communism and then take on uh, the liberal views of America and Europe. the the bit that people seem to miss out is that there is a gap between the dock and the ship. And a lot of countries, when they um, uh, are trying to step from one to another, what happens is they fall between and they end up in nationalism. And nationalism is the most powerful uh, political doctrine in the world. There's nothing stronger than uh, than a country that believes in itself. And we're seeing that right now in Ukraine with the call of uh uh glory to Ukraine, slava Ukraine. they are absolutely going to fight to tooth and nail and we've seen that so many times over human history we understand how this goes down but this nationalism um, does end up dredging up some pretty nasty things from the bottom of the barrel like fascism like people that are far-right skinheads neo-nazis that kind of thing but nationalism can be a powerful tool um, and it, it can also be co-opted very easily to get people thinking that, well, you can make your country better. Think how rich you'd be if you were capitalist. Think how uh, strong you would be if you were under um, the, clause five of the uh, NATO agreement and you had the protection of the rest of uh, Europe as well. Essentially Europe as well. Think how um you know, freer you would be, and more able to express yourselves and be independent in Ukraine if you had uh, a, a liberal democratic system at play. Obviously, looking across at Russia, who doesn't have that ideology, who doesn't want to be part of that, who is very happy the way they are now, who share their views quite closely with uh, China. You're talking about. You're talking about upwards of. Uh, nearly a third, slightly under a third, let's say a quarter, a quarter of the world disagree with this statement. <laughs> they, they don't think it's a good idea. And when you see NATO getting more and more countries and coming more and more to the east, and you see the uh, European Union starting to kind of pepper itself in there, and you see all this talk of them getting more and more connected to NATO, Russia starts to think about its version of the Monroe Doctrine, which is, hey, here and no further. So, let's continue on the line here with uh, the Ukraine and, and what's going on there. A lot happens. I don't want to get into every single part of it. Let's skip forward to um 2000 and uh, 2008, I believe it is. Yes. Okay, so 2008, um you have the um the uh, UN, uh, sorry, the NATO coming out and making a statement on Ukraine's membership action plan. Now, at that time, Germany uh, was very nervous about Ukraine entering the fray and becoming part of NATO because it recognized that Russia had laid down clearly what was the rules that they were going to abide by. Um, if you imagine uh, Russia now imagine Russia um, if we go back to like two thousand and ten, Russia suddenly has got a deal going with I'm trying to pick somewhere neutral. The Galapagos Islands. (laughs) Trying to keep it something. But they made a deal. Galapagos is owned by um, uh, uh, Ecuador, right? And... um, they make a plan with Ecuador and they say like, hey, we just want to do like have a little research base out in the middle of nowhere. Like, is that, is that possible? We could buy something or rent something. Like, Yeah, sure. No problem at all. It's just research. And they say, we're going to put a couple of military personnel in there as well. The U.S. would go like, mm, you got military personnel in the Galapagos? Like, really? And then they say, well, you know, we are a little bit nervous about uh, U.S. intentions. So we're going to put a, a, a SAM missile battery or something out there. The U.S. would be like, what are you doing? What exactly are you trying to do in the Galapagos? You are way too close to us. The Monroe Doctrine would be triggered and they would have a problem with it. It is unfair, unrealistic and not pragmatic for us to think that the Russians don't have their own ideological structure and don't have their own nationalism and their own belief in what they're doing and that they are not going to feel impinged upon by nato the eu and liberal democracy ideology moving closer and closer to them because we are within it we feel that we are right i've lived in communist china i've lived in uh, in countries throughout asia who have a very different view of what's going on in the world their position within it and um and what the role is what role is being played by the us and by europe within this um, we can talk about U.S. foreign policy a little bit more in another one of these. I want to try and keep these down to within a couple of uh, minutes of half an hour if I can manage it. I think I'm already breaking the, uh, <laughs> breaking that now. But 2008, a statement is made um, by NATO, and it, uh, it's a statement. It, it goes out that nothing really has been agreed between them and, and Ukraine, but it says that it promises that Ukraine will one day be a member of the alliance, but does not put it on a specific path for now. At that point, can you see the massive red rag which has been waved directly at the Russian uh, uh, Russian state at this point? Now, it's interesting to note that at this point in international politics, Putin was not seen as being crazy. He was not seen as being uh, someone who was trying to recreate the Soviet Union. He was not seen as being a threat at all. That narrative uh, has been uh, developed very quickly in the last couple of years based on actions which, to be honest, were seeded by what Europe and the US is doing. Let's go a little bit further forward. Um, in 2009, uh, Gazprom, the state-owned Russian gas company, stopped pumping uh, natural gas to the Ukraine. But as all the pipelines go through the Ukraine to um, uh, uh, Europe, basically they cut off gas to Europe, and that created a massive issue very very quickly under international pressure pressure to resolve the crisis um a new deal was struck with putin um and that was uh one in which they were confirming their essentially their neutrality um and uh, internal politics within the country to kind of calm calm russia down that's 2009 2010 um uh uh, What's his name? Yanukovych. Yanukovych, then the president, Yanukovych. um, He said that Ukraine should be a neutral state cooperating with both Russia and the Western alliances like NATO. So you've got that uh, that threat in 2009, 2010, the prime minister of uh, the president, sorry, of Ukraine is saying, hey, we could um, we could just be a neutral state. And of course, that lowers the boiling point in Russia because uh, now they have their uh, buffer between uh, Europe, NATO, the EU, and themselves. They are happy again. That status quo is getting uh, closer to um, something that they are, they are happy with. Um, 2011, 2012, there's a lot of uh, eruptions going on within Ukraine. But in 2014, you have uh, Maidan, uh, the revolution, and the annexation of the Crimea. So this is where we have to do a little bit of uh, history again. Um, I was watching some wonderful, wonderful documentaries last night by a uh, a, a history professor, no, a geopolitical professor called John Mearsheimer. Um, He's out of the University of Chicago. I honestly think, go online, have a look for him. His surname is uh, M-E-A-R-S-H-E-I-M-E-R, Mearsheimer. He has some very interesting points to to make on this. I'm not saying that everything he says is correct, but um, what... Professor Meersheim was pointing out was the fact that um, by presenting a number of, um, of documents, which on the YouTube channel is going to put these up here. Now, let's just scan through these quickly. I'm going to explain them for those who are just listening on the podcast. What we're looking at here is a couple of documents which show uh, the breakup of uh, the Ukraine broken up through um polling and through political interest and through language and through their ideological uh, tenets. Um, it is very easy to understand Ukraine um, when we see it on these kind of um, maps showing different dem- uh, demographics. The country to the east is russian-speaking you've got areas like the donbass who are russian-speaking russian ethnicity and they have viewpoints which are very close to what's going on in russia meanwhile in the west of the country and in kiev you've got a lot of people who lean much more towards the liberal democracy of uh, of europe and their their view and their thinking move towards what's going on in europe we don't need to get too much into these graphs but you can see for those who are watching on youtube the way that these different colors divided up you can see a country which is divided um Although it is a a state which has a, a boundary, which is agreed upon and united, within it, it's somewhat divided. And we have seen this so many times through history that although a line can be drawn around a country and then defended and invaded and all the rest of it, Inside the country, there are a lot of complicated situations. Look at Cyprus, of course, that would be a perfect one. All sorts of complicated interconnectivities between people's histories, their present circumstances, and what they think and feel and their own personal nationalism where that might be going. So in uh 2014 the uh it's a messy situation to say the least it's it's the one of the most uh, it's the f- first really bloody period in ukraine's history since the end of the soviet era and um the issue essentially was that um uh russia Russia was like very quickly suddenly in the Ukraine. There's suddenly like Russian soldiers were in the Ukraine setting up checkpoints and what have you. And where that comes from is the fact that the uh, naval base at Sevastopol was rented by the Russian government. The Russian soldiers were already in the Ukraine in a legally rented, agreed military base inside of the country. As uh, communication between those two nations started to break down, the soldiers literally... Came out of their base, and they were already there, ready to do what they were doing. But so the annexation then of the Crimea was the uh, was the simple takeover by the Russian army of an area which ideologically and ethnic uh, their ethnicity and their language was closely alloyed to what was going on in Russia. So it was not quite as simple as russia just taking over the ukraine they felt that the ukraine as a whole was starting to get way too pally with uh, nato that uh, announcement which had come out saying that NATO, uh, ukraine would be on a trip uh, down the path to becoming a part of uh, nato that was only just recently in their memory and suddenly um, you've got these areas of the Ukraine that started to blow up because they didn't want to be part of this. Uh, the areas which they're talking about uh, there is uh, the the uh, Donetsk and uh, Luhansk. Those areas now are coming up in the uh, the news today. Um, if we look at our situational report of what's going on around us now, we've looked at history a little bit, we've seen what's going on. The The, the down on the ground changes in the last uh, couple of days in uh ukraine since we last spoke is that the um the prime minister of ukraine has come out and said that ukraine will be a neutral country and he is talking now about respecting more clearly the rights uh of the uh, ethnically uh, uh uh russian people that are in the east of the country and even talking about the fact of um the um these areas potentially splitting off from from Ukraine, so Putin, from his point of view, feels under pressure from NATO breaking the 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 the, the rules that it put in place, the guidelines that it put in place um, at the end of the Soviet uh, system. He is not out to try and create a new russia you know russia went into afghanistan in what 88 and it was a total and utter mess for them to try and hold that territory you the russia trying to hold the whole of ukraine it is so big and there are so many people there is no chance of russia being able to hold on to that territory um, if they were looking to take the entire thing it's going to cost them billions and billions of dollars to just do what they're doing now they can't take it over they want it to be neutral. What is it that Putin is in uh, Ukraine trying to achieve at the moment? What is it that he can get out of the situation as it stands now? And this is the, the third path, which um, is not being discussed very much in the, in the press at the moment, which is that... With this history in mind, with this slow inching to the east, with the removal of the neutrality of the Ukraine, with the removal of that buffer between the European Union and Russia, um, it doesn't matter who's in power in Ukraine. It doesn't matter if they're fascists or uh, liberal democracy or whatever they want to be. From Russia's point of view, under their version of the Monroe Doctrine, they have a line in the sand. They have they have put up with nato coming more and more to the east from their point of view i'm not saying either of these sides is right i'm saying that from the russians point of view this is how they see it and with the movement in of the uh, eu of nato and of this ideological um uh kind of um evangelism basically of like liberal liberal democracy for everyone we feel that's good but remember a third of the world doesn't think it's good um what Putin is doing is he's going down the third option. And the third option is wreck Ukraine, okay? Wreck Ukraine. He can wreck it so badly with his armed forces that whatever government is there, it'll be such a mess that they won't be able to enter NATO. They won't have the structure to be able to enter NATO. They won't have the infrastructure to be a, uh, a solid, um, uh, a solid base for anything for anything for nato anything for the eu anything for russia but it doesn't matter when two armies um battle it out and entrench themselves over long periods dig in on either side of a war what's that area called in between it's no man's land and it exists to create a neutral boundary between two large peers that are in conflict with each other Russia is much smaller now than the Soviet Union was. Its GDP is actually smaller than Texas. It's It cannot afford to war to, to wage a, a war which goes on and on for many years to try and hold on to somewhere like the Ukraine. You know, if you want to ruin uh, an opposition country, you try and encourage them to take on this kind of invasion because they will wreck their economy trying to do it. There's no way that Russia is that silly to try and take that on. They're not trying to expand themselves and make back into the Soviet Union. They have literally literally clearly stated we're not trying to do that but they have also literally stated very clearly this is the line in the sand and we can't say well why should they have a line in the sand because the the US does that with the Monroe Doctrine on a regular basis and nearly drove drove the world to Uh, nuclear war because of Russia putting some um, missiles into into Cuba. And remember, they don't forget that stuff either. Those uh, sanctions against Cuba still exist now, 60 years on, because the fact that they broke that Monroe Doctrine is very serious. And... Russia does not forget that Ukraine said it would be neutral in the 90s. It doesn't forget that uh, that NATO said that they wouldn't move any further east in the 90s and in the early 2000s. It doesn't forget anything that's happening here in exactly the same way that um, the ideological system that we are part of doesn't forget. So where does this bring us to now? How do we get out of this? Well, I will say this. When I spoke to you last time, I was uh, at the point then where... Um, the, um, Russia, the Ukrainian uh, president had been um, appealing to NATO to let them in. And uh, they were talking about no-fly zone over Ukraine being imposed by other, um, uh, other nations. Now, luckily, it seems, and I say luckily, uh, in the last couple of days, he seems to have um, done something which we don't often see in politics, which is very admirable, which is that he has... Uh, chosen a better path he has realized perhaps the situation he's in fully um, and he is choosing a more intelligent path and the more intelligent path starts with ukraine saying um let's let's be neutral let's let's do our own thing now as that starts to happen you know it is possible for nato to bolster up U the uh, well not nato no let me say let me change the eu the eu economically can assist the ukraine to rebuild and and to build better but if it does it has to be hand in hand with anything that russia's doing it has to be done that way or not done at all and that you know it's a shit situation for the ukrainian people there's no two ways about it but they find themselves in in a piece of land which by no fault of their own is a very important um pawn between much larger uh uh, uh, rivals nuclear rivals who we do not want to see fighting with each other similarities would be um people living in panama like um you are having a canal driven through your country that's how it's going to be um if you're in uh Hong Kong or, or or Singapore or there are certain geographic um, uh, elements of your country which may mean that its history pushes it in one direction or the other for better or for worse. If you are born and you live close to the sea it's likely that you're in an area which has much more trade than if you're up in the mountains somewhere. There's not that many cities that sprung up historically naturally that far away from transport infrastructure systems. So the The unfortunate lottery here for the Ukraine is that it's in this position, but it is in that position and there's no way out of it. So um, the best possible thing now is exactly what uh, the president is doing, which is that uh, he seeks to calm the Russians like, hey, 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 we've made a mistake. Uh, We will be neutral. There is a part of me living in the ideological system I do that thinks, man, that is not fair on the Ukrainians. That's not fair. Like they should have the opportunity for free speech and for democracy and for all these benefits, which I see as being part of the situation I live in. And I really feel that way. But if they go down that path, which they have attempted to go down that path, and they have been goaded down that path by the UN and by Europe in the last 30 years, they will they will they will be crushed by russia they will they will uh, wake up the gorilla living in their backyard and it isn't going to be pretty they have to be stepped very very carefully here and I, I am not in any way uh i live in canada i'm british and i've said before my viewpoints are absolutely neutral um the uh situation uh, as it has been in um uh The last couple of years i will say this donald trump like just putting his name into any conversation uh creates a a problem but it was donald trump that started to limit the us funding of ukrainian troops which at the time was seen as being a humanitarian um crisis of its own that he wasn't helping them out but it was trump that said that um uh vladimir zelensky should go and trade with putin And whether you like it or not, it is not logical nor pragmatic to say that because you disagree with uh, some aspects of what one person says, that everything they say is therefore wrong. I disagree with a huge amount that Donald Trump had to say and do. But on this point, it may be that he saw a little bit further down the path. Here, He was not willing to antagonize uh, Russia. He understood that they had. Got their own Monroe uh, Doctrine. I'd love to find out if there is actually a phrase for that in uh, in Russia. Uh, if they they see that line as being something which they can really identify as yes, this is the line. We don't want to go any further than that. So. Um, I'm not going to go into everything that's happening in the here and now. We'll keep developing this on, but certainly as Russia moves into the eastern states, we've seen on the the couple of little uh, charts I showed there, they are moving into areas which are uh, ethnically Russian, which uh, use Russian language, ideologically Russian, and it's quite an easy fit for them going in now. And the Russian, the, sorry, the Ukrainian people are standing up in a in a fantastic fashion to the russian troops that are coming into their country it is their country it is theirs they fought for it they declared independence it's absolutely theirs and they have every right to fight for it but unfortunately because of the geopolitical lottery they're born into as each individual within that country they are not strong enough to take on russia even in the diminutive shape that it has now after the soviet union broke up and to believe the um the, the the kind of pied piper of the US that it's all going to be better if they become part of this uh, uh, liberal hegemon, which is the US and Europe. That's not going to work out. If you're Poland, yes, you can do it. If you're Germany, you can reunify. Yes, you can do it. But as you start to get to those countries which are right on the border with the Russian bear, you do not want to be rattling that cage. And that is just an unfortunate fact of what's going on. So... um. Questions. Uh, your questions coming to me. Let's have a quick look at some of these now. Um, I, have I kept to my structure? Have I kept to my timing? No. My little glass thing has completely run out. I'll give up on that. We're, we're developing things as we go along. I've just got to open my uh, app here on my iPad and find some um, interesting. Uh, here we go. All right. So uh, thoughts on the crisis uh, in in the Ukraine. This is coming from BSO. Um, He says, why do Western countries feel the need to create NATO? Um, Because it was truly created as a defensive organization. um, And all the information that he's uh, or she has uh, found about NATO so far uh, support the defensive concept. Absolutely. NATO was created um, as an anti-Soviet convention organization. You might say North Atlantic Treaty, but it's like, let's find something to draw a map around. We want America and Europe and then this kind of line, and then russia over on the other side um we should talk about in a, uh, another one of these what's going on with the uh with china because china's got its own thing going on and they also have been um affected by this three-prong attack by the west of uh well here's capitalism take some of that yeah and if we can get you into the um world trade organization there's a kind of structure for you to be part of have a bit of that and then uh, well yeah would it like side salad of uh, of liberalism there that has created its own issues in China everything that's going on in Russia now is us doing that to Ukraine and it not working. It's also us trying to do it literally in Moscow, like trying to literally create the, uh, uh, the change in regime there, but it, it obviously didn't get very far in, in Moscow. But um, yes, the uh, NATO definitely setting up as a, uh, as a defensive organization. And I think that's another thing where Russia, not to paint that Russia's like, you know, the innocent child and all this, they're definitely not, that um, when they broke up their Warsaw Pact, uh, I think the feeling was that NATO would then um, would then uh, uh, break up as well. It's that Clause 5, which is the thing, that any member state that comes under attack, like under attack, like under attack from whom? Under attack from North Africa? Are you talking about here? Are you talking num- under attack from polar bears? Under attack from South America? Under attack from China? When NATO was set up, China was uh, not a country that was about to invade Europe. So when they said clause five uh we will defend you if you are attacked they meant attacked by russia that's what that is you can basically get all the rest of the nato convention kind of put it to one side that's the important bit that's the tip of the spear if any one of us gets attacked then all of us will jump in on this battle and that was the only way you know the the Good guys made a gang that was as big as the bad guys gang. That was kind of it. Ignoring the fact that the bad guy gang actually got rid of the even worse bad guy gang during the Second World War. But forget that. You're just too damn big. It scares us. You've got different ideas than we have. So we're going to club together over here and we're going to we keep this uh, boundary between us. But uh, a little bit of hubris and uh, American foreign policy um, playing out time and time again where they've they've been so big for so long that they're able to kind of march into countries affect regime change affect ideological changes none of which has ever worked by the way it literally has never worked for the u.s ever but that kind of foreign policy now being enacted on a country which is right on russia's doorstep the Monroe doctrine which we described here from 1823 that also is in effect in russia and we have tripped that so the only way of de-escalating this now is for vladimir zelensky in ukraine to do exactly what he's doing get the people out of there remove the humanitarian crisis element from this absolutely essential that nobody else dies and then Regardless of whatever we think about it, whatever we think about might be the outcome to this. He has to declare independence, um, that he's not going to be part of NATO. That will probably calm Russia down quite a bit. And then he has to try and find some way of interacting with the Russians, which will uh, confirm to them that. They are not uh, going to have Ukraine blow up again and try and be part of NATO. Um, allow those ethnically Russian people in the east of the country to um, either separate or, or be recognized and have free rights. They don't have a very good record in Ukraine of respecting the rights of these ethnic Russians and the ethnic Russian language. Um, these things need to be sorted out internally and you'll probably find that everybody backs back down. If that can happen, we will avoid bloodshed. We will avoid the destruction of the Ukrainian economy. The fallout from all of this is, I think, the last thing we'll talk about on this one, which is with the oil. And I, I haven't got into my research fully for this now. God, I've got to wet my whistle here. It's that uh, the coffee's gone cold. Mm. That's a drinking problem when you throw it down the front of yourself. Um, The situation with the oil is very odd. I want to look into that a little bit further. Certainly as soon as um, uh, Biden came into uh, power, one of the first things he did was to shut down um, the uh, alternative pipelines which were going to flow out of Russia. Um, He obviously has a very strong green policy. Um, They're trying to look to renewables in the near future, something I'm definitely behind. But I'm also always behind pragmatism and realism and uh, if you ignore those as a, a sailor knows you're, you're never going to win you cannot deny the weather and what it's going to be we are not in a position right now to be able to run on renewables it's not gonna happen. We don't have enough nuclear. We don't have enough hydroelectric in the West. We are reliant on fossil fuels for the moment. We need to fix that. And we are reliant on a lot of Russian gas and Russian oil. So the US at the moment, is, uh, it's got about 30 billion barrels of uh, oil in, uh, in in reserve, okay? And uh, Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, um, was asked the question, why was the government holding back the oil industry in the U.S.? And she responded that they weren't holding back the oil industry, that there were 6,000 Uh, unused oil permits uh, held by uh, oil companies in the U.S. that weren't being used. And this was supposedly meant to show that, well, we're not holding them back. It's the oil companies themselves that need to do more to sort this kind of thing out. The reality is that most of those permits which are not being used are not being used because there's no oil under that ground that's why they're not being used. There is a huge amount of oil in reserve for the US, and yet we've found out in the last couple of days that uh, they're gonna not take Russian oil. I assure you that Putin in his uh, plan to come uh, further west and deal with what's going on in Ukraine from his point of view, um, did not do this uh, thinking that there wouldn't be some blowback in the, in the form of sanctions. There were enough sanctions put against Russia when it annexed the Crimea in 2014. They knew what was going to happen. It's perhaps a lot more severe than they're expecting, but certainly with the oil issue, there are plenty of people around the world, plenty of, plenty of countries would be very happy to take Russian oil from Russia uh, if it's not being sent to the US. So when Biden says we're cutting off Russian oil, it's like, well, okay, that's a... That's a victory in a in a way. It's kind of a pyrrhic victory, though, because uh, how is this going to how is this exactly going to hit the Putin war machine? What's what's this going to It's not going to do anything, is it? It's like throwing rose petals beneath tank tracks. It's it's not slowing them down. Um, the the issue, though, is the fact that Biden is now off talking to uh, the Middle East and to Venezuela, both of which are countries with ideologies that have been uh, I think resolutely demonstrated to be not cohesive with uh, things that we believe in in the west and and i'm trying to be cautious and careful about that but you were talking about um uh parts of the world um where you you don't take your kids on holiday right and um the the thing is that those countries now are turning around and saying to biden ah, we're not we don't really care what you think and maybe we don't even take your call Um, Meanwhile, gas prices are soaring. I saw uh, it's uh, over $7 a gallon in the U.S. at the moment. We're over $2 a litre here in Canada. Um, Cutting off this uh, Russian oil is not the reason that the oil prices are going up. The oil prices are going Oil prices were going up long before Putin rolled into uh, Ukraine. They were already on their way up. We all know that. We also should remember that during COVID, there was a moment where oil was in negative prices. It was costing them to store the barrels of oil, and therefore there was a negative price on a barrel of oil. Did it go down to like minus $8 or minus $10 or something? We're now looking at $150 for a barrel of oil, this incredibly volatile in in. in in a few different ways, a volatile uh, a commodity is something which um, the U.S. is absolutely dependent on. And unfortunately, it is uh, inflation tied to the mandates and the things that have been going on during COVID and the crazy printing of money that the U.S. has been involved in. That is what is causing Oil prices to go up just bog standard inflation. If you look at the situation elsewhere, you know, if you wanted to see elsewhere where they're going to be hit, they're banning uh, Russian imports. We've now got um, urea fertilizer, which would have been like three sixty five coming in per ton from Russia. Um, that's now up over eight hundred dollars per ton for man for uh, farmers to put that fertilizer on. Like, how is that going to be? How is banning that substance coming out of Russia stopping the Russian war machine? It's not. All it's doing is adding a huge amount of money to the grocery bills and to the fuel bills of people in North America. So I think what we get down to in the bottom of all this um, is we need to understand uh, where we are. Where we are heading to with this, the great worry. The great worry, of course, is that when you've got two large powers, both nuclear powers, the US and um, and Russia, this close to each other, almost in goal involved in a shooting war. You know, at the moment, we're talking about the fact that the Polish planes might be going over to the Ukraine and the Americans are going to backfill uh, in Poland. That's basically America's providing war planes. Millions and millions of euros and dollars of lethal aid going into Ukraine. We are basically funding this insurgency against the neutrality of, uh, U- of of the Ukraine and we are triggering the uh, equivalent of the Monroe Doctrine in, in Russia and we are choosing to do it and then we are selling that at home uh, as, a, as a way of basically covering up exorbitant inflation which is happening due to uh, internal policies related to COVID so I will finish that, this up with one thing which is, I think is the key thing to remember how important is the Ukraine to the US Well, we can make some statements about that at a humanitarian level. If you have family and friends there, it's very important. But we can see by the fact that they are not marching in to defend Ukraine. That's the level of importance that it has. It's not that, um, um, you know, Taiwan. Taiwan has a contract with the U.S. that says that if China invades Taiwan, then U.S. will go in. Now, the U.S. may or may not stand up to that contract we can discuss that at another point they have no such contract with the us now they're not part of NATO so clause five is not triggered nobody is marching into the Ukraine right now that's the level of importance that this has for Europe they're just kind of trying it's just kind of like you're just kind of messing around with the school bully just kind of like gently poking him just kind of hey I wonder what this does well, the school bully is about to wake up, and the school bully, in the form of Russia, is taking this very seriously. And they have explained this previously very overtly. This is one of their fundamental principles of the sanctity of their own sovereignty as a country their monroe doctrine that you do not cross this line with your equipment or your ideology or your good ideas or your um uh, organizational methods and rules and nato and and all that stuff that isn't happening here they don't want part of it when we view the conflict in the ukraine through this lens we find two very important things number 1 US policy, European policy right now. And I think that's what's going on. Certainly in Europe, they're a bit more cautious. America's kind of a bit, yeah. Um, their policy at the moment is that they are not taking it. They are not taking this as seriously as Russia's taking it. And that would be a bad thing. That is the worst. That's where you, you know, that's like picking on a guy in the bar and you don't realize he's had a really bad day. It's just it's the wrong time, the wrong kind of person to be messing with. And Russia is the wrong kind of country to be messing with. And at the end of the day, if the US, uh, what, what would happen if Russia had not removed those missiles from Cuba? OK, what would have happened there? What would have been justified? There was many people in Kennedy's uh, close circle who wanted to set off a nuclear war against the soviet union at that time that's what was going on inside the organizational structure that runs america they were thinking we'll nuke the ussr because they've broken this monroe doctrine and even if we get hit and millions of people are wiped out then uh that is okay to not think that russia's thinking the same way is incredibly dangerous And to believe that they're not thinking that way because you're not taking it seriously is naive to the point of blindness. So um, I think Vladimir Zelensky is saying, hey, we're going to be neutral. Uh, We're going to respect the rights of these ethnic Russians on our eastern flank. Very, very smart. Get the people out the way as much as you possibly can and work this out. And this might be a case where... um, Ukraine learns not to listen to the US and to EU and to get involved in things which it shouldn't do. It has the right to be a strong, independent, sovereign territory. It has the right to have um, a, a free market economy if it wants. It has all sorts of things, but it cannot politically or by strategic connection ally itself with its neighbors to the West. That is the Ukraine's lot—that is the unfortunate lottery of that part of the world and the people that live therein—and to deny that is uh, is to deny history and to deny the pragmatic facts that are in front of us so I uh, say in the comments below if we're going to get into this I'm really happy to accept her comments and to see things from other perspectives that's what I have uh, drawn from the situation right now I would love to hear what you've got to say about it as I did on the last one and I'll try and read out some more of those on the on the next go-round with this and let's uh let's talk it through let's understand it from as many angles as we can let's try and make sure that when we're communicating with it we're using the kind of language which that we want our leaders to have and that in the end surely will lead to uh, uh peace in the ukraine the the, the cessation of uh, of hostilities in the ukraine and and no more deaths which is the only thing that we need to be you know if if somebody's pumping gas here or if someone's got this thing positioned there or if this guy said that in some meeting like okay whatever but when people are dying on the streets we have to stop that and then we'll work everything else out and looking at history history would suggest that ukraine becoming neutral and confirming its neutrality is a great way to slow down this problem just as it was very simple to end the Cuban Missile Crisis by just taking away the missiles. Okay, and just to finish up that thought from the Cuban Missile Crisis in uh, '61, um, Kennedy had already given the um, given the okay to have the Jupiter missiles removed from Turkey. Um, when the Cuban Missile Crisis um, kicked off, he um, he was talking to uh, Khrushchev and saying that um, uh, I will remove the missiles from turkey but you're not to tell anybody that this is the deal we are not we are not going to back down or not be seen to back down in some kind of deal with you we just want your missiles out of cuba right now but we will get those other ones out of turkey of course Nobody realising at the time that that was a deal that was being made. It was absolutely shut down in Washington as no one was going to know that. That only came out years later. And obviously the Russians not realising he'd already signed the paperwork to get rid of them. It was a very easy thing for him to do. It wasn't giving anything away, um, but it was all that Russia needed. So... I, I would say that look, look to your own history. Look, do do your own researching. Look up Vladimir Putin. Look up Putin as he's reported in two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten. Is he reported as someone who is trying to expand? The, back to what the Soviet Union was. No. Is he uh, a worrying dictator who's uh, uh, Hitler uh, uh, reincarnated? No, he's not. But the narrative that had to be formed to cover up this massive bungle in, uh, in foreign policy, particularly by the US, that had to have... uh uh, an outcome which did not include the u.s admitting uh uh, responsibility for what it done by encouraging ukraine to look away from its neutrality and look towards being part of nato okay well let's cut me off there (laughs) excuse me while i interrupt myself um you know it was part of a much longer podcast and for me as a content creator I'm learning how to uh, you know, discuss things other than sailing. I get going enough on sailing um, when it's things like this where there's people being hurt, people being killed, it's very easy to become impassioned. So it ended up being an original like two hour recording so I just cut it down into this format so that it wasn't quite so heavy but um look i'm really interested to hear what you have to say about this what's your take on all these things i'm doing more research at the moment about uh, what's going on with the oil because that really does affect us as sailors if uh, people are putting thousands of liters of fuel into boats the cost of that fuel has a, a big uh knock-on effect but also of course the inflation which is happening all over the world now where does that come from? What's happening? Is it really all to do with the conflict in Ukraine? Because I'm pretty sure those prices were going up long before tanks started to roll. So, look, I'm going to keep doing one of these every every couple of weeks, something like that, just to uh, share knowledge and share my perspective on things. I really enjoyed the interaction from the last one I did of these. And I look forward to more constructive and polite and uh, nuanced feedback from you. But uh, for now... Uh, Thanks very much for listening through to the end of this one, if you have, and uh, I'll speak to you in the next Mariner coming very soon. Cheers.